Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Uh, thank you, and thank you to everyone joining us online for this discussion. You know, observers have known and lamented the lack of transparency in China uh, across the board, going back uh, many, many years from economy to military to influence operations, not knowing the real extent of the threat that Chinese ambition posed to the United States, and, and frankly, not knowing the extent of the outrages that they commit on the human rights front. Uh, presents a real problem for policymakers in the United States, in, in the United States, which no doubt is one of the reasons why China's government's government is so opaque to begin with. It's a feature of their system. It's not a bug. Uh, well, our report that's coming out next week on uh, China transparency is seeking to get at exactly that problem. I'm going to say a little bit more about the report uh, in just a minute or so, um, and we're going to talk to a couple contributors uh, to the report. But first, we're very honored and pleased to have with us Congressman Steve Shabbat, who's going to make some opening remarks. The COVID-19 crisis involving China has served as a wake-up call for the United States on a range of threats posed by the rise of China. More and more people are now asking, what else are the Chinese hiding? Well, Mr. Shabbat didn't need any wake-up calls. He's long been a leader in addressing threats from China, as well as Asia foreign policy issues uh, in general. He's also long been a friend of the Heritage Foundation. Mr. Shabbat is currently the chairman, well, he's the ranking member, maybe chairman in the not too distant future, but right now he's ranking member on the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on the Asia Pacific, having several, served several years ago as the, as the chairman of that uh, subcommittee um, during uh, Republican control. So um, with that, I wanna welcome Mr. Shabbat and then invite him to the stage to make his remarks. See. Thank you very much, Walter. I appreciate it. I want to thank both you and the Heritage uh, Foundation for this uh, invitation to speak on really what is, I believe, a very important uh, topic, and that's the lack of transparency and cooperation inherent in the uh, communist Chinese government. Fortunately, as is the case with so many of the initiatives undertaken by the Heritage, uh, the hard work and uh, focus and innovative thought that you've dedicated uh, to the China Transparency Project will help to expose the fundamental flaws in our understanding uh, of and approach towards the PRC and should serve as a critical resource uh, in developing more effective policies to combat uh, the strategic challenges that the PRC poses to both the United States and, let's face it, to our allies across the globe. As I think your report will make clear, we need to continue reevaluating our basic approach towards engagement with the Chinese government. Uh, ever since Nixon went to China, the United States has attempted to play nice uh, with the PRC in hopes that incorporating them into the post-World War II order would push them to become more responsible global citizens. It's now become clear that those hopes were at best overly optimistic. The communists uh, in Beijing were never interested in joining our system. Instead, they've used our efforts at engagement against us 
hiding their strength, investing heavily in their military, and developing strategic initiatives to remake the world in their own image. Make no mistake, on every front, Beijing is challenging the free world and our premise that open societies, free markets, and the rule of law automatically uh, result in a prosperous and equitable civilization. The Chinese Communist Party's bid to replace our premise with their own ideology is obvious. Whether we look at their fundamental disregard for human rights, their rampant theft of intellectual property, their manipulation of the international trading system, or their penchant for secrecy and cover-up, which only worsened the COVID-19 pandemic. As a result of this direct challenge to our way of life, the United States finds itself in a strategic competition we did not seek and we really do not want, but which we must win. For Republicans on the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee and the entire committee overall, this competition is our top priority. And that's why, as you mentioned, as ranking member of the Asian Pacific Subcommittee and formerly the chair of that committee, uh, I've made advancing our strong policy to counter China my principal objective. Fortunately, in our subcommittee, uh, I've been able to work across the aisle with Chairman Ami Berra uh, to ex and he ha actually was my ranking member when, when I was chair, and I'm, I'm a ranking member while he's chairman. Uh, we've worked together to expose China's manipulation and lack of transparency, and I hope and expect that we will continue that work in a bipartisan manner. We actually do have Republicans and Democrats working uh, together, at least on that committee. And that's where I believe the China Transparency Project and the inaugural annual report can be most helpful uh, to those of us in Congress dedicated to exposing and combating the strategic, economic, and national security threats posed by the Chinese Communist Party. On so many issues, our understanding of what China is doing is incomplete. We see openness as a virtue because in democratic societies, we derive our strength directly from the people. And they have a right to know what their representatives, like myself, are doing. Chairman Xi on, and his CCP leadership cronies, on the other hand, derive their strength through division, oppression, and manipulation. Consequently, there is no need for the CCP to communicate its activities to the people which means it's accountable to no one but itself. Whether it's the Belt and Road Initiative, the origins of COVID-19, China's true economic situation, its investment decisions, its hidden human rights practices, its efforts to co-opt elites across the globe, Beijing's own internal decision-making for that matter, or its drive for technological supremacy, we need a better understanding of what's truly going on in the PRC. The PRC's opacity is dangerous for three reasons. First, it increases the risk of miscalculation. No one fully understands what's happening in China. On the one hand, China seems to be an unstoppable juggernaut, posing an existential threat to peace and freedom throughout Asia and the Pacific region. On the other hand, they seem beset by internal problems like pending catastrophic debt uh, and serious demographic challenges. 
The problem is that so many of our military, economic, and business decisions depend on accurately judging China's trajectory, intentions, capabilities, and more immediately, where they are investing and what they are doing. Without a better understanding of China's true activities and intentions, we may underreact as our track record over the past four decades indicates we will, or overreact, as the case may be, uh, in any given, <coughs> excuse me, to any given signal. There are inherent dangers presented by miscalculation uh, that can only be avoided by a better, more thorough understanding of Beijing's activities and intentions. Now, second, the, the less we know about what's going on in China, the greater the risk that China's problems will become the world's problems. Uh, if the last year and a half has taught us anything, it's that we live in a highly integrated global society, and significant events in any nation can potentially impact every single person on the planet in ways that were unimaginable just a few decades ago. If Beijing had simply shared information about COVID-19 earlier and in a more honest and transparent manner, there's a chance it wouldn't have become a pandemic. And it's certain that the death toll wouldn't have been nearly as devastating. Even without cooperation from Beijing, better access to information from China might have allowed us to see the pandemic coming sooner and better prepare to deal with its ramifications in a more timely manner. The more we understand those challenges, the more it becomes clear, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> uh, <coughs> pardon me. Third, if we want to win our strategic competition with China, it will require a far greater and deeper understanding of China than we currently possess. As the great Chinese strategic thinker uh, Sun Tzu once said, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. But the PRC's opacity makes that quite difficult. And make no mistake, that's by design. They view secrecy as an asset, both economically and militarily. And they're correct. Breaking through this veil of secrecy is critical to helping us design a more effective response to the challenges China poses now and in the future. The more we understand these challenges, the more it becomes clear why Heritage's work with the China Transparency Project can be so valuable to the policy community. Since the CCP won't discuss its own activities, we must do our best to determine independently both what Beijing is doing and what they are capable of doing. That's just as important. The work that you have undertaken to make that information more readily available will go a long way towards helping policymakers craft the appropriate policy response in so many areas. Whether it's China's economy, their outbound investment, their approach to energy and the environment, their atrocious record on human rights, their growing global influence operations, or their massive investment into military systems and technologies. It's critical for us in Congress and in the administration and analysts across the policy community to have access to the most complete and up-to-date information possible. It's my hope and prediction that Heritage's annual report will become a touchstone for understanding the PRC in the years to come. 
I know it will help Congress uh, to craft better legislation to win the struggle for global uh, ideological supremacy between Beijing and the free world. So I want to once again thank the Heritage for doing this very, very uh, important work. Uh, and I'll yield back the floor, yeah. <laughs> as we say in the House. Yeah, thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Good so to see you. Good to see you. Well, I don't know what else I need to say about the report. That was uh, that was better than any um, than any pitch we've made on the, on its on its importance. Um, we are um, we are going to dig into it just a little bit um, here, and I, I'll give you just maybe a few highlights so you kind of have an idea of what's what to expect in the report um, when it comes out. Um, what we do is systematically look at what sort of information the CCP and the government make public and identify gaps in it. Needless to say, on the official side, there are tons of gaps. Um, but more importantly, what we do is we survey dozens of international efforts, private efforts outside of China that are doing their best to provide this information despite the lack of cooperation from authorities in Beijing. Uh, we we um, evaluate the state of those private sector efforts, you know, the overall picture that they paint, how transparent China actually is in the areas that they're looking at. And in fact, we provide a rating both for how well the Chinese are doing and how well these private efforts are addressing the, the gaps in, in information. So that, that way we have a, have a basis, we have a baseline for deciding um, how much progress is being made or what the lack of progress is. And, and in several areas, there's, um, there's not much progress at all over the last few years. Um, we've posted a summary of some of this um, in the um, in equivalent of the chat on, on, on the software here. So if you're looking uh, from home, you should be able to, to download that and see some of the, the areas I'm, I'm talking about. But I'll hit just a few of them here briefly, again, just to give you an idea what to expect when the report comes out. Um, one on e economy, economic issues. Um, Congressman Shabit touched on this a little bit, but needless to say, Chinese information on, um, on its own economy are notoriously unreliable. Um, no surprises there. What, what, what we have uh, identified, though, is a need to um, go behind the numbers and to find out how exactly the Chinese corrupt these statistics. At what level in the process do they, um, do they corrupt, corrupt them? Is it in the calculation of the GDP? Is it in investment figures, retail figures? Is it at the local level? Um, is it at the province level? Where exactly do these numbers um, become unreliable and why? Is it, maybe it comes directly from Beijing. Maybe it comes directly from Zhongnanghai. They, you know, they've got certain figures to hit, and they will hit them at lower levels, whether they can um, appropriately do so or not. Uh, another, another area we look at is energy and environment. Actually, in the range of eight things, the Chinese are, are best in, in this in terms of transparency, but it's still not, it's still not great. Uh, they've hidden industrial projects and, um, and environmental costs under the guise of state secrets. And state secrets, you have no way of accessing. And in fact, if you try as a Chinese citizen, um, you probably find yourself under arrest. If you try, try as an American reporter or a foreign reporter, you'll find yourself escorted out of the, out of the country. Uh, the environmental piece is really important because of, of so many areas out there, we talk about working with the Chinese. This is the one thing that people hold out as well. Maybe this is an area we can work with them in. 
if they can provide us reliable environmental information, it makes it kind of challenging to find ways to work with them on the environment. The worst place they do, sort of worst performance, is in transparency around human rights issues. Um, that's probably also uh, no surprise. Uh, but what we identify in the report is um, the prospect of making use of some cutting edge technologies that are being used to, to um, study particular problems in China, like the Xinjiang uh, issue, the fate of the Uyghurs. There's been a lot of work done there with satellite technology, correlating that satellite technology with personal stories and press stories and photographic evidence and internet presence and that sort of thing. It's the sort of approach that would work across the board on other uh, human rights issues, or at least should be given, given a try there. And then um, the last thing to mention out of the eight areas, I'll only focus on these for now, but the last area to mention is um, on, uh, on political developments and military uh, issues in China. Um, both the access to hard copies of documents and online resources have become increasingly scarce uh, in both of those areas. Uh, believe it or not, there was a time where you could walk into a bookstore in Beijing and you could buy a book that's written by a PLA general that is read by PLA recruits. Um, that's, that sort of access isn't there anymore. Similar thing has happened uh, with uh, military and political information uh, that's stored in databases that have been made publicly available in the past. So another area, it's really difficult for us to know what's going on, what the level of uh, spending is in particular categories. Okay, the, the big picture number is mostly for propaganda. It doesn't mean much at all. Um, what matters is when you break those numbers down into how much procurement is being done, how much is being spent in an operation and maintenance, et cetera, et cetera. So, the report tries to identify some of those gaps uh, and, and, and uh, suggests ways that we can improve them. Uh, the report, the bigger uh, China Transparency Report, also includes a range of topical analytical essays from leading experts in their fields in order to drill down in some of the specific areas of concern. Which brings me to our next speakers, uh, both of whom were very lucky to have with us today and with whom we've worked very closely both in government and out of government. The first speaker, the first person I'll turn to for questioning here is Chad Wolf, who is former acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Affairs. He's currently a visiting fellow at Heritage Foundation. He and our vice president for national security and foreign policy, Jim Carafano, contributed an essay to the report on the malign influence uh, of the Chinese in U.S. Um, research universities. So we're going to talk to him about that. And then David Fife. David Fife is just coming off a four-year stint at the State Department, where he most recently served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for East Asia and Pacific. He's now an adjunct fellow at the Center for um, CNAS, the Center for New American Security. Um, I get so used to calling it CNAS, sometimes I forget the whole, uh, the whole thing there. Uh, David co-authored a Piece. Along with uh, Laura Crouch, I should mention, uh, in her in her personal capacity, she is a uh, she is a professional staffer on the Center for Relations Committee. But in her, per her personal capacity, she worked with David on this report. Um, uh, it concerns undersea cables and the and the, uh, the, uh, the threat that the Chinese pose there in terms of uh, uh, deployment of those cables and the potential for 
for using them in ways that uh, could damage U.S. and, and allied uh, security interests. So we're just going to jump right in here with uh, with discussion. I've got a lot of questions, um, but uh, we also have a way for you to ask questions online. So so go ahead and put your your question in the chat, and um, and uh, we'll try to get to them before we're done here. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask Chad, as I head over to the the, the chair here, is um, could you break out the the issue of Chinese influence in in U.S. universities. It's a pretty complicated one. It both needs to be broken out, I think, and sort of distilled to its to its essence. Uh, but what is uh, what's our current state of knowledge about what's going on there? And are there areas you would identify as things we just don't know quite enough about? Um, both known unknowns and unknown unknowns. Thank you. Well, thanks, Walter, and uh, thanks uh, again for Heritage for doing this event and. Uh, allowing me to be part of the report. Uh, I think it's critically important. And when I was at the Department of Homeland Security, we used to look at a variety of different threats facing the homeland. And the threat of malign Chinese influence to the homeland was at the top of the list every week, every month that you looked at it. So it's something that I've been talking about. I think it's something that the Department of Homeland Security is taking a, a closer look at uh, beyond just the traditional threats of counterterrorism and, and other threats that the, the country is facing, this threat from China. And a big part of that is what's going on in our universities today. So China's ultimate goal, as, we, as I think we all know, is really to be the world's leader in both science uh, and technology. And to do that, they're going to need to recruit individuals and foreign experts. And the way that they do that is looking at U.S. Uh, institutions, universities, and colleges. And so they can do that a couple of different ways that we, we have seen. They can do that by recruiting U.S. researchers and professors uh, to do that and, and through a, a couple of different programs, one of which we'll probably talk about, the Confucius Institutes, but also sending a lot of Chinese nationals to the U.S. on U.S. student visas uh, and how they take advantage of those visas, what they do on those visas while they are here, and the knowledge transfer that they then send back to China uh, on a variety of sensitive subjects. I think we need to take a, a closer, harder look at that. We started doing that under the Trump administration. Hopefully that will continue. Uh, but I think that's critically important, making sure that the thousands and thousands of students' visas that we issue to Chinese nationals to come over here to study, they need to be better um, uh, checked, screened, vetted, uh, and we need to periodically check up on them. Uh, because what we saw is you can do one check, uh, but if they're here in the country and they get extensions to those student visas for years at a time and go on to graduate degree programs, um, you don't have a good idea of, of what they're doing. Um, and so we need to have a little bit more oversight. This is about transparency, the report. Uh, this is about disclosure. This is about holding them accountable um, to doing what they said they're going to do versus you know what they might do after being here years and years over time. So I think it's a growing um, issue to uh, really address within our university system. And I think what we've seen over time is <clears throat> there's a lot of university and colleges out there that are willing to accept a lot of funding uh, from uh, the Chinese government or Chinese-backed institutions uh, without disclosing, without making it apparent what is that relationship and what does that relationship entail. Um, and I think that's really uh, what we need to see more of at the end of the day. Yeah. Can I ask you, um, um, how do you sort the purpose of the students being here? I mean, yeah. clearly there's some fields that you could go into, uh, you know, as a student or as a 
graduate researcher or as a professor that have no real impact on U.S. security. And then there's some that really sure. have a strong impact. And then there's probably some area in between where it's hard to make a call. How do you sort that? Well, I think we see the, the vast majority of, uh, again, Chinese nationals coming over really in the hard sciences versus more of what you would classify as sort of liberal arts uh, degrees. So we certainly see them in the STEM fields and, else, and elsewhere, which is concerning, I think, to us. But I think it comes back to that transparency and that disclosure, making sure that we can vet these individuals. We can look into what types of, uh, of programs are they going to study in the U.S. and where did they study in China, perhaps? and who's backing them, who's providing the funding for them to come over to study, where have they studied previously, what's their end goal. So I think asking these questions, making them be transparent about that um, so they can't hide the fact, uh, and, what, and that's what we've seen. As we do a lot of these different investigations, we see ties to uh, universities back in China that obviously have a, a direct tie to the military, and that's concerning when you're going and you're studying um, a variety of different subjects. Right, right. Thank you. Um, uh, David, um, the, the, the area you looked at in the paper, in, in one way, is vastly different, it seems like, than the area Chad looked at, and that's um, in the availability of information. You know, in Chad's area, you really had to dig into it. You had to go to the university, you had to figure out. The thing that astounds me about the undersea cable issue is that so much of it is hiding just in plain sight. I mean, the, the company's public information from companies, press reports, et cetera, et cetera. Can you sort of give us a little bit of background on the issue and, and maybe shed some light on that? Certainly. Well, uh, thanks, Walter, for the, for the question and obviously for the opportunity to participate in a, in a really impressive transparency project that, that you and your colleagues are, are leading. The, the undersea cable issue, as you suggest, is interesting because aspects of it are hard to see or are hidden, uh, and aspects are completely visible. And yet, as a major policy and strategic challenge for the United States and for our allies, the issue has been long overlooked in some key ways. One aspect of the problem is that in the internet age, it's often hard to actually understand the sorts of systems we rely on because we're dealing with the, the literally invisible transmission of enormous amounts of data through telecommunications infrastructure that is often visible in the way that we can see cell towers, but is still hard to understand and, and, and at a minimum complex. And part of the challenge with undersea cables can be seen, I think, in the contrast with the public understanding or the public consciousness of satellites. People have, in I think all of our sort of public imagination, a sense that satellites are out there and they're really very important. We've all seen them, we've all seen movies where you know there are dramatic scenes of, of satellites doing this or that. And yet it's almost not known at all that some 95 to 99% of global data flows flow not through satellites, but through undersea cables. And undersea cables are visible, but almost entirely unseen. Almost no Americans uh, and, and very few American officials have seen an undersea cable at the bottom of the ocean or seen an undersea cable where it plugs into a landing site in some you know, obscure uh, fenced-in area along the coastline. So it's not something that we have a real consciousness of. And in our policy debate in recent years, 
in our international diplomacy in recent years, we've had a major expansion of understanding of the Chinese Communist Party's dedication to dominating international telecommunications, to taking advantage of international telecommunications infrastructure, to access data, to be able to manipulate data, to be able to hold vulnerable data flows in the future, in possible future crises. We've had all of the awakening around 5G and Huawei. As welcome as that is, almost all of our attention from a policy perspective and a political and a diplomatic perspective has flowed to 5G terrestrial hardware. You know, the question of, you know, who will we or who will our European allies, who will developing countries in Africa use for their 5G base stations? That is an extremely important set of questions. But all of those concerns, all of the risks of compromise of the data to the Chinese Communist Party apply also to undersea cables. And so one of the main points of our paper is simply to note that the sort of concern, the sort of policy creativity, and the sort of diplomatic seriousness that we increasingly understand we need to apply to 5G when you're looking at terrestrial systems, when you're looking at Huawei, needs also to be applied in the thinking of the US government and of our allies and friends overseas to undersea cables and who builds them and finances them. Um, you know, you, you, you mentioned the, um, the sort of uh, different ways that the 5G issues and terrestrial um, hardware um, concerns have contrasted in terms of the amount of attention they get, right, to, to undersea cables. Um, I mean, being undersea, I guess you can't see them. <laughs> you can at least see cell towers and you have some concept of how that that might work. But there's also been a disparity between the way that we have treated in the past, to the extent that we're focused on it, the threat from Russia and the threat from China, right? I mean, if a few years ago, maybe during the Obama administration, they began to focus a little bit on the threat of Russia to those cables. What, what about, uh, what happened there? How come not China? No, it's absolutely right. There's an extremely uh, telling difference in the way that uh, policymakers have looked at the undersea cable issue as regards Russia and as regards China. It was very visible right, in some surprising ways inside the US government. The US government has a vast interagency that goes back literally generations that focuses on undersea cables, but focuses on undersea cables overwhelmingly in their defense from foreign adversary military sabotage or in their defense from natural disasters, you know, earthquakes undersea that might cause outages in these cables. What you've mentioned about the Russians involves the foreign military threat. There were a lot of, uh, you know, Navy versus Navy, sort of spy versus spy type uh, dynamics between the US and the Russians during the Cold War, for example, around access to undersea cables for, you know, espionage purposes and possible uh, military sabotage. This is an aspect of the undersea cable uh, challenge where there is real awareness across governments and militaries uh, in the US and among our allies. What happened about five, six years ago during the Obama administration was you started to see some news reports about the Russian Navy uh, gaining new capabilities that might allow them to threaten undersea cables in Europe and transatlantic in ways that were concerning. And those concerns about military sabotage are indeed real and need to be addressed. But what's interesting 
is that as those sorts of concerns generated greater interest in undersea cables, there was a almost complete oversight of the fact that we have real commercial concerns as well that come from China. China, as a military rival of the United States, you know, also poses potential risks in the military domain. But what China poses that Russia does not is major ambitions in the commercial domain, which is what we've seen, of course, from China in many other areas of, of technology and international commerce. They have state-backed companies, including Huawei, where the main undersea cable uh, construction player out of China was known for a long time as Huawei Marine Networks. It's now been rebranded as HMN Tech, but it's effectively the same company. And what it wants to do is it wants to capture a large share of the international undersea cable market, not by sabotage undersea, but by winning contracts from telecommunications companies and governments all around the world to build cables. This would be done legally. It would not be an act of, uh, of military sabotage, but it is backed by the same sorts of influence campaigns, the same sorts of massive state subsidies, the same sorts of technology theft and abuse that Chinese industrial policy uses endemically. And it would pose enormous threats to the data integrity of all these enormous amounts of data of ours and of countries all around the world that flow through these systems. So recognizing that while we protect undersea cables from Russian submarines, we also need to have a much better understanding of the commercial landscape where undersea cables are being constructed in larger and larger numbers as 5G comes online, as 40% of the world gets onto the internet for the first time. There will be very large numbers of contracts and competitions that are run by governments and run by private consortiums of telecommunications firms. And whether those projects are built by trusted providers from the United States, from Europe, from Japan on the one hand, or built by unfortunately untrusted providers from China, subject to all of the sort of uh, data theft and, uh, and data subversion of the Chinese Communist Party, is an enormous strategic question for the coming years because enormous amounts of our private data, our consumer data, our scientific and our governmental data will be flowing through these pipes for years to come. Great, thank you. Thank you. Um, Chad, I wanted to come back to you uh, for something, and then we're going to see if we've got some questions from the, the online audience. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the Thousand Talents program and associated similar uh, type programs, what they're, what they're aiming at, what has been the track record? Um, seems like it was a focus of the administration in the last few years. Could you like sure. us on that? Yeah, you know, the program overall is one of many, I would say, talent recruitment programs that the Chinese government has. Uh, and the idea here, again, is to, you know, incentivize these individuals here in the U.S. that are engaged in research and development to transfer that knowledge from the U.S. back to China uh, and to do so in exchange for, for money, for salaries, for uh, grants, uh, lab time, and, and other incentives. Um, and so that's concerning, right, because usually that transfer of knowledge is, is for uh, national security and military aims for the Chinese government. And so the idea here is uh, and you want to make sure that we shine light on that. I think the goal at the beginning of that program, uh, which was started, I believe, back in 2008, uh, was to recruit somewhere in the neighborhood of about 2,000 to 3,000 individuals. I think upwards, uh, they ended up recruiting over 7,000. So Americans highly, or, or highly is this successful. international? Well, this is international. Uh -huh. Highly successful overall. 
Um, but then I think the world and the U.S. and others started catching on more and more. Um, um, you know, spotlight and focus has been um, you know, on the Thousand Talents program. There's been bills introduced into Congress. There's been reports saying about how you know we're not really taking this seriously. And this comes back to disclosure and transparency, making sure that if, uh, again, a researcher gets a grant from uh, a Chinese institution of some kind, let it be known what that is um, instead of, of hiding it out, um, which, is, which is the main concern. So I think over time, uh, now, Chinese government has rebranded this program. It's no longer the Thousand Talents programs. They, they call it a, a three or four different names, and we talk about that in the report. Uh, but there's a lot that we still don't know about it. And again, that goes back to that transparency and that disclosure that we need. Uh, you know, again, the the idea that uh, Chinese institutions are going to engage with academics here in the U.S. is not necessarily bad. Um, but the the concerning part is not understanding what that relationship is, and what are the incentives, what are they being paid by who. Let's bring that out into the public, bring that out into the open so that we can make informed decisions. Yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's a big country. I mean, the United States is a big country with thousands of universities, right? It's hard to know exactly what's going on and how the Chinese are engaging in it. And this ties into you know, some of the Confucius Institutes that are, are here into the, in, in the U.S., which have been dwindling over time because, again, I think we're shining light on this relationship between U.S. institutions and, and Chinese institutions and the lack of transparency there not really understanding what's going on. And there's been several high-profile um, you know, Justice Department cases of prosecuting individuals that have abused this, that have not been transparent about the funding and the research that they're doing. I think at one point uh, last year, um, maybe the Attorney General made public that there was an investigation or, or an indictment, actually, every day um, for, for some time, which, which actually you know, turns out to be an important function of this report, too, because by showing where the needs are, you can also direct resources there, because that's an issue as well, right? So, so knowing what's going on is the first step. Doing something about it is the second step, but to do something about it, yeah. you need to have the resources there, and, and Justice Department pretty stretched on... I, I think that's there. right, and, you know, Director Ray uh, from, the, from the Bureau has been very outspoken on this as well. Uh, not only the Chinese threat to, to the U.S. specifically, but the threat to universities um, and what's going on at the university level is concerning. Right. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Justin, do we have a question from the audience? Sorry, my mic's not working. But, uh, it is now. Um, we have a lot of great questions here. Um, the first one is actually going off your comments, Chad. Um, so we've obviously seen um, recent administration and you know, uh, Congress address Confucius Institutes, and um, you know we've seen noticeable impact. But you know why has it been harder to address the Thousand Talents program, um, and what makes it so difficult to um, target the program directly so that we cut off? So, so the question was really about the Thousand Talents program, what makes it so difficult to target that uh, like we've done with the Confucius. Again, I think if you go back, there's been, uh, I believe it's Senate Homeland Security Committee back in um, two years ago, two to three years ago, had a very extensive report on the Thousand Talents program um, and how it works, what's the design behind it, the influence here in the U.S., um, its ultimate goals. So I think there, there's actually been a lot of effort to shine a light on this program. 
uh, I talk about it hand in hand with the Confucius Institutes, the more light that you shine onto it, the more you know, education that we provide to people. Uh, we've seen it on the Confucius side where a number of, of U.S. universities have said, well, it's not worth it. It's not worth having this relationship where um, I, I, I don't know what's going on. So you've seen the number of Confucius Institutes around U.S. campuses drop considerably. I think they were a high of close to 100. Now it's probably a handful. Um, and, and those that are still there, I think, need to be, again, more proactive and more transparent about that relationship. Um, you know, part of that relationship that we found was in some of those institutes that, um, you know, university professors couldn't talk about, couldn't research certain things having to do with, uh, the, you know, the PRC. So it was concerning, right? You're, you're talking about stifling. Uh, research and development and thought on U.S. college campuses, not really what you want to do at the end of the day. Um, so I think both of them have, the Confucius Institute issue has taken off sort of recently, whereas the Thousand Talent Program has always been there. It's been there for several years that we've been looking at. Again, I think um, uh, the Chinese government has rebranded the Thousand Talents Program. Uh, they, they now call it two different, uh, two or three different names, but the intent is still there. The intent is still to recruit uh, individuals and so you have that transfer of knowledge back to China. And again, I think the best thing that we can do, I know there's a number of bills that are being introduced to, to stop that practice. The best that we can do is more transparency, more disclosure, so that we understand what these are and then we can make informed decisions moving forward. Yeah, it's a problem for a lot of our partners and allies too, not least of whom are the Taiwanese uh, who have, you know, a, a lot of um, sensitive information that could help the, the Chinese and, um, and they also have the cultural and linguistic connection and the proximity, yeah. right? So it makes them even a, a greater target than we are in some ways. Uh, David, I wanted to ask you a similar question, which is uh, around this policy uh, basket is um, how much transparency is there on the U.S. side in terms of policy development where we are on these sort of the, the amount of information that's being shared by the government for for the American people, both on the extent of the undersea cable problem and what it's doing uh, to address it. And, and I don't mean to imply there's any sort of purposeful, uh, you know, effort to obscure it, but, you know, sometimes, especially in something that is already a little obscure, there's no effort made to get the information out there. So, so what's, what's the state of affairs there? It's a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, when it comes to U.S. policy in terms of our domestic telecommunications infrastructure, uh, the Federal Communications Commission plays the leading role in giving licenses for the construction of uh, undersea cables that, that come internationally and land on U.S. shores. There's a high degree of transparency around this, and there's been a very visible hardening of U.S. policy with respect to cables that are, uh, would either be built by China's Huawei marine networks or even cables that would be built by trusted providers but would connect directly between the U.S. Uh, you know, mainland and China. And so there was a, uh, there are several, uh, three or four of these connections right now that are direct between the U.S. and China, but the last license was given uh, by the FCC for such a link in 2017. And since then, you've seen several proposed projects that have not met with the regulatory blessing from the FCC because the FCC has become uh, well, completely unable to trust that cables that would land either in Shanghai or in Hong Kong would be free from Chinese state subversion. 
Another piece of the sort of U.S. domestic uh, policy mix has to do with technology controls. And there, it's a little more opaque, which is how are we managing things like export controls to see that sophisticated fiber optic technology needed to allow the Chinese players to really compete at the top tier against the more you know, long-standing and more advanced democratic country players, are we preventing American institutions and companies from exporting that advanced technology, uh, or are we seeing leakage of a damaging variety? And some of that, frankly, has to do with U.S. companies that would be exporting this technology. Um, and some of it, in a way that speaks to some of the points that, that Chad has been raising, relates to what American universities are doing, often with the sponsorship of Chinese technology and telecommunications companies, and whether they are providing technology to China that we would rather not see them provide. And all of these are important policy areas. Yeah, yeah just, just something uh, to add, and I think what David's saying is, is critically important. When you talk about the FCC and the under, undersea cable issue, they rely on, you know, this is a policy decision at the end of the day, and they rely on State Department, uh, Department of Homeland Security, Treasury Department, what's called Team Telecom, and providing them recommendations on these undersea cables. And uh, as David indicated, you know, I think the Trump administration, we took a very proactive view about the threat uh, of Chinese um, not only control uh, in these cables, but it is a policy decision. So I think it's really, you know, we're going to have to take a look at the Biden administration and what kind of view that do they take on this as well. Is it a very strong and hardened view? Or are they going to, you know, sit back and be influenced by some of these service providers who are funding some of these cables at the end of the day? Because it's, it makes business sense to them. And I, and I would note, uh, just further on Chad's point, Team Telecom is an extremely important institution in this way for advising the FCC on national security issues. And it was through the Team Telecom FCC process that you saw the first denial of a license application to this Pacific Light Cable Network cable back about one year ago in 2020. An additional piece of the regulatory regime that's really just emerging that was initially teed up in the Trump administration and has been taken forward by the Biden administration is the so-called ICTS process. This is uh, about the information and communications technology and services supply chain. It's essentially a regulatory, an interagency regulatory process for scrutinizing cross-border data flows, which is so much of our economy and is clearly seen in the undersea cable issue. And so, you know, we've had CFIUS for a long time that is an interagency process led by the Treasury that scrutinizes what would be you know, inbound foreign investment into the United States. We now have, in a way that the Trump administration began, the Biden administration has taken forward a framework for looking at cross-border data issues in an interagency fashion that's led by the Commerce Department. But the implementation of this hasn't yet begun, and it's something that is obviously in the hands of the Biden administration and has enormous implications for national and economic security. Yeah, it's, it's uh, all about getting ahead of the game, isn't it? I mean, um, critical and emerging technologies and, and the sort of information, the sort of work that's uh, at play in our universities, we have to understand that. We have to understand what the Chinese are trying to do at the base of it. Because we can always control it at the end of the day, but we might not hit everything, right? I mean, I mean all these exports, even the export of, the, uh, of information, of knowledge is controllable, but we've got to get back closer to the start, right? And, and that's really what our report is all about, is identifying the threats that maybe we don't see 
that are that are emerging because they're in their their infancy and because they're hidden behind conscious effort on the part of the Chinese to hide their activities across the board. Um, with that, let me uh, thank you both for for being here today for talking talking with us about the about your contributions to the report. We very much uh, appreciate them and value them, and um, we will uh, will. Uh, post it next week, June 30th is the release date, so people online should be expecting to see it and they can read about, they can read both of these papers and they can read the, the, the rest of it touching on all the other areas. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.